Hello again and welcome to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ online at RadioNorthland.org and you can check us out too on TuneIn if you want to listen live. That's a very, very good way to do that too. I'm Glenn Broggett along with my co-host way down there deep in the heart of Texas, Mike McCurdy, the grizzled vet. Uh, again, we always open, I guess, because we're just, you know, we're aging. How's that uh, weather going uh, down there in the deep heart of the Texas? Uh, it, it's all right here as of the recording. We're sitting at a nice mid-70s kind of a day. 92. Oh! Is it a, a dry heat? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You walk out from an air-conditioned building outside, and it's like being punched in the face by Rocky Balboa. It is just hot and miserable. <clears throat> oh, 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 uh, we again when it gets to like 85 we start to be like oh 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 it's gonna be a heat wave so i'm i'm definitely i i i sympathize uh hey we're here for another edition of wrestling memories uh before we get with our guest today just gotta talk a little bit about this uh i finally received in the mail today as recording right now i got the update uh, I've been waiting a while. It's been a few delays for whatever reasons, but uh, they made good. The, the the Power Town, what was it? The Power Town is that what the name of those are? The action figures of that they came out with by, way back yes. in the fall. Yeah, yeah my 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 full set has has arrived for that first uh, series. So very excited about that. And I think the one that really again we talked about this off mic uh, was the the Bruiser Brody figure. I mean that I think when they put that out and the, and they when they started teasing this collection last fall that was that was a big get that was one of those that had a lot of people signing up and, and taking advantage of a pre-sale yeah Brody got my attention that's one of the ones i want uh also what is there carrie von eric magnum ta stan hansen i mean the, the opening line is great so i'm hoping there's they have a successful run so they can produce more figures but what i've seen from people on all my collector clubs and everything they're putting up pictures of the figures look amazing. They look great. I mean, most of them are still in the box. There's a couple of guys who took them out, but I wouldn't recommend that. But no, the figures look great. Mm-hmm. I wish I had the money to buy a complete set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But last fall, I, I had a little, little bit of cash, so I said, "What, what the hell?" Uh, you know, kind of got me. Uh, and then again, I mean, I, they also are getting me a little bit on this line that they're uh, putting out here, or they're they're starting to roll out the, the news and information. Uh, about the acquiring of the Remco name and uh, putting out the line of figures that were similar in size and whatever to the AWA uh, figures that were put out by Remco in 1985. I remember because, you know, I live up here in AWA country, one of the, I think the Christmas that they came out, I remember uh, getting the ring and the Road Warriors, and that was like the, the greatest thing because I had the LJNs that you could throw at somebody and, and get charged for uh, m- a minor crime because they were so damn heavy. It was, you know, those Remcos were so cool because they did them in two packs and they had some very cool stuff. I mean, I remember getting like Carlos Colon and Abdullah the Butcher set. I mean, there was the Grudge Match series, Stan Hansen, uh, you know, Jerry Blackwell, the Freebirds triple set, uh, Jimmy Garvin, Steve Regal with Precious, the Haven had a little female Precious uh, that was a real, uh, not a very uh, sturdy doll, uh, figure, but yeah, that stuff got me thinking about that too. So nostalgia is a little bit pricey these days, but boy, take for, for just have that little escape back to 1985, 86. Yeah, it, it's worth it in the end. I've seen uh, the the original Remco figures. I never owned any, unfortunately. Obviously, I was in California. That wasn't. Uh, AWA area. I do have an LJN Iron Sheik, though. We were talking about that before the show. He's actually sitting here on my desk right next to me, and 
a little bit, a little beat up, missing some paint, you know, a uh, little tear on the foot. But I picked them up at a flea market in a bag with Roddy Piper figure for five bucks. So did, did the Piper still have the kill? You know, you're right. You can you can beat your children with those. Uh, not that I do that, people. But you could. Those things are a solid piece of rubber. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely they could protect you from you know if you end up uh, you know potentially getting assaulted. You can use that thing. Just bring out the Andre the Giant figure, the one with the afro, and just dunk right in the head. But it's kind of fun that you brought up, and you know, very coincidental that you brought up Iron Sheik and his figure. Uh, Mike, we have a, a great guest who's going to talk about, uh, you know, the Iron Sheik. I mean, this guy was got to be very close to with the Sheik. He ended up working on a, a, a book that didn't see the light of day in the end, but still, uh, this guy's put out some great stuff. I mean, the stuff that did see the light of day. We've had him on in the past. Uh, the guy's always busy. If he's not uh, talking about uh, pro wrestling, you'll see him on various television shows. The guy, the guy knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And I'm going to let you do the proper honors to introduce our wonderful guest today. Well, yes, our listeners are going to recognize him from not only uh, a past guest on our show, but on many of the shows you'll see on the History Channel, like the Mysteries into Museum and things like that. That's how my wife knows him. And when I mention I'm like, oh, it's Keith Greenberg. How do you know him? But yes, folks, that is our... Uh, our guest for this week, none other than you know, author, historian, and like I said, talking head on many of the History Channel figure shows. We're going to talk a little bit about the Iron Sheik, his life and times. You know, obviously he passed here just last week. But our guest today, none other than Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back again, even though I'd rather be here under circumstances when I wasn't eulogizing somebody once again. Yeah, we, we've been doing this a lot recently. Unfortunately, we've had uh, Evan Ginsberg on, Mike Leno, and it's been talking about the passings of Lanny Poffo and superstar Billy Graham. And But, you know, you got to remember them because if we don't remember them and it's not for shows like this and people like you, a lot of their, their career, a lot of their history is going to be forgotten. So, you know, while it is a sad occasion, I, I, it also I serves a very positive purpose. Yeah, sadly, Lanny Poffo, you know, was a good friend of mine, and I had written a book with superstar Billy Graham and now the Iron Sheik. So these were three wrestling friends who died back-to-back in a very short period of time. So I'm still going through the process of trying to make sense of that, and you really can't make sense of that. It is part of life, and you are right. The legacies are what, what, what... what is most important, as well as the personal stories about who these people were as human beings. And I don't want the characters they portrayed to overshadow the, the people they were. Well, we're here to talk about the Iron Sheik today, but before we get on to that topic, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity for a second. You know, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe a story about Lanny Poffo and superstar Billy Graham? Because as you said, you worked with Billy on his book, and you and Lanny were close friends. I'd like to give you an opportunity to, you know, maybe share a story about you know your experiences with. Oh, them. thank you. That 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 that's uh, that's awfully nice of you. You know, I uh, I did one of the eulogies at Superstar Billy Graham's funeral, and people were often um, curious about why he took his loss to Bob Backlund so hard when he lost. He knew the day he was going to lose the title to Bob Backlund in 1978. And yet, when he lost, he went into an emotional spiral. And I think that uh, 
you know, all through his life, even though he looked magnificent, he looked like he was chiseled out of granite, there were a lot of people who sold him short. And when people use the term fake to describe wrestling, it's so inaccurate. Because when superstar Billy Graham was given the title, it was an indication that he truly was the best in, in the promoter's mind of anybody to carry that title. And it silenced the people who ever questioned him. But when that title was taken away, I think it brought him back to that place. And as sad as that was for him, and I said this at his funeral, I think that's the reason a lot of fans related to him. Instinctively, we're supposed to hate a guy who's bronzed and chiseled and bleach blonde, yet there was something in the way he expressed himself and carried himself, even when he was a villain, that we liked. And I think that's why the fans were turning him into a good guy at the time of his title loss. So I want to add that. Lanny Poffo, you know, called himself the genius. And I've said this before. He, he knew he wasn't the world's smartest man. He probably thought he was among the world's smartest wrestlers. And, uh, you know, he and I would go on the road together and we would stop off at libraries and we would stop off at bookstores and we would stop off at museums. So I got to see him as the genius in real life. And, um, you know, I was grateful to have a friend like that, just like superstar Billy Graham was a fantastic artist. And so they, both of these men added things to my life that were non-wrestling related. I know we're here to talk about the Sheik, but I just wanted to throw those two facts out there. Well, I was glad to hear the story because I met uh, superstar Billy Graham at CAC back in 2009 and you know for everything that was been said about him he treated me just like he'd known me for years I mean my experiences with him were great and that also allowed me to have my my very unique uh, experience that weekend with uh, the man we're going to be talking about this week the Iron Sheik but uh, no no Billy's great and like I said you know it's stories like those and you know memories of those that people like you and Evan Ginsberg and Leno and all the other historians can share that are going to allow you know these guys their legacies to live on and for you know the rest of the generations from now to be able to look back and see you know what was important about these guys what was great about these guys so always a pleasure right. to give uh, you know you guys an open forum to, to discuss your friends but as we said, we're here to talk about the Iron Sheik who just passed this last week. You wrote a book, and I'm kind of curious about this. You know, we'll talk about this a little bit. You wrote a book about the Iron Sheik that, unfortunately, for other reasons, never saw the light of day. Uh, could you tell us a little That's bit about true. that and kind of how you got involved with that and how that kind of worked with your relationship with the Iron Sheik? Well, um, it's funny. For a long time, I didn't even like talking about the book publicly, but... The last two years or so, I've gotten over that. Um, the book was assigned to me in 2008, and the initial publisher was Simon & Schuster. And um, this is when the, ha the Iron Sheik was a staple on the Howard Stern Show. And I think the initial motivation for assigning the book was that it would be filled with outrageous Iron Sheik stories and appeal to those Howard Stern fans as well as uh, wrestling fans. 
I think by the time the book was complete, WWE had gone through something of a transformation. They had become more of a PG company, and a lot of that grit, and I'm not, I'm not demeaning them, it was a, a branding decision, but a lot of that grit, a lot of that perhaps um, tawdriness or sordidness was no longer being packaged into the product. And it seemed like the Iron Sheik book wasn't going to be a good fit anymore. And at the time, he still was struggling with drug addiction. And there was a fear of putting him on the road in that frame of mind. And you met him in 2009, so I think that might be one of... I, I have a feeling it was one of those types of stories that you, were, that you, that you remember. Um, am I correct? Oh, 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 very correct. Um, I've told the story before, but uh, no, it just—it was interesting. It ended with me being kissed on the cheek by by him as I got him into the cab. But there were some experiences, and unfortunately, yes, uh, some of his addictions were in play at the time, as I saw when I was at his hotel room uh, for a brief few minutes. But you know, it, it leads to an interesting story, and I've said before, it's probably one of the best stories I'm ever yeah. going to be able to tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, that's not the man I want to remember. But no. um, uh, you know, uh, while but but in in terms of how the book unfolded, not to say that he was a bad guy then because he wasn't. And if you recall, he kissed you on the cheek. So there was still a humanity there under all of that. And people have struggles and problems, you and I included. So you know, I'm trying to look at the full picture now and. The full picture is a very nice picture. That side of him was one small part of him, and there were many parts of him that were a lot deeper and richer and longer lasting. Um, so that book wasn't published for reasons I explained, and I thought the project was dead. He was paid the rest of the advance. I was paid the rest of my advance, and I moved on, and a few years later, uh, he kicked drugs, and he reconciled with his wife, which was probably the best thing he ever did personally in his life. And uh, he was getting, he was close with his family again. And uh, WWE decided it was time to put the book out now. Now it was a different publisher, ECW Press. Of course, it would be a different type of book because this story of his his redeeming story about beating drug addiction would be included included in there. And so I, you know, changed around the book, and there still all the crazy stories were there, the Howard Stern stories were there. There were some things that were added. Um, you know, he was an outrageous guy. And uh, I was up at the WWE office selecting photos for the book. So this book, this was going to come out and this was going to be a very popular book. And then somebody very high up, I was never told who it was. It was not Vince, I was told. Looked through the book and saw some of his stories about his escapades on the road and some of the escapades, even with the Howard Stern group, and said, I don't see how this benefits our brand. And for a second time, the book was killed. And for a second time, I was paid. 
So I'm disappointed that the book never came out. Um, I can't complain about WWE. I mean, they paid me twice. Um, you know, but I have had the opportunity to tell many of these stories. There was a documentary that was done by his business managers, the men he refers to as his nephews, the Megan twins, and I appeared in there. Um, I um, appeared in the recent A&E biography about the Iron Sheik, and a few years back I wrote a story for Playboy magazine about uh, the Iron Sheik. And so these stories have come out. Um, not every story. Uh, there's a lot of stories that, you know, you can only put out there in book form. You can only say so much when you're one person being interviewed in a, in a two-hour documentary. But, um, you know, uh, in the course of working on that book, I became very close to him, and he and I always liked each other. In fact, on the night he won the championship from Bob Backlund in 1983, um, I actually was one of two guests who uh, came up to his hotel room. Uh, it, it was Keiji Nakayama, the Japanese wrestling photographer, and it was um, and I was not with WWE at the time. I was writing a, a, a periodic wrestling column for the Staten Island Advance, and it was just Keiji Nakayama and I with the Iron Sheik and his wife. And I have to say, we had a very civilized night. And, um, you know, it was not what you would imagine a night with the Iron Sheik to be, uh, you know, hours after he wins the most important title, arguably, in professional wrestling. And I feel like I always knew him that in that way. And when my thoughts go to him, yes, of course we all remember the funny stories, but they also go to the man I saw with his family and the understated, serious athlete I saw with his wife that night. And, you know, him describing to me how he didn't want to bring his daughters to wrestling. He thought it was great that the fans hated him, but he was worried about his, his, his kids being around wrestling because, you know, back then the secret wasn't out. Not everyone knew he was playing a character. And so, you, you know, the, and, and working on the book with him twice deepened the bond that we already had. And, and it also deepened the bond I had with his family. Now, that's one thing about the Iron Sheik and a lot of, you know, our younger listeners, younger, uh, you know, fans are the only thing they know really is, you know, what they see, you know, the Howard Stern stuff uh, that the Twitter account he had where everything was like, I humble, I break the back, uh, you know, and other colorful words that he would use. But when you watch the documentary on A&E and you learn more about the Sheik and, you know, his backstory and his story of getting into professional wrestling. I mean, he was an older gentleman when he got into it, but he would drive the ring truck. He would put together, he would help put together the ring. He was obviously also an Iranian national uh, champion of wrestling, uh, bodyguard for the Shah of Iran. You know, there's so much about the Sheik that people unfortunately don't know now because all they want to focus on is the, the, the Sheik of the later years with the break the back and the humble and all that. Right that type of right. stuff. Um, yes. She is an athlete, though. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, give a little backstory, kind of on you know, because you wrote the book, uh, kind of give 
little bit of the backstory on Sheik's you know introduction into wrestling because I found the whole story fascinating. Well, um, you know, he, he his father was a Greco-Roman wrestler, and uh, or rather, it wasn't exactly Greco-Roman; it was a Persian style of combat. But um, you know, it, it it was an ancient sport that evolved at the time of the Greeks and the Roman versions of professional wrestling. And his fa- his parents ended up owning a, a wrestling gym and uh, in, in Tehran. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of tradition attached to that gym. It, it, one of the examples, and you could tie this to the way the Japanese train, and you talk about making someone humble, this is doing it in a different sense. You know, just as the Japanese trainees in the dojo will wash the backs of the more senior wrestlers, whether it's in sumo or pro wrestling, you know, the Iron Sheik would walk into the gym and the doorway was deliberately low, so you essentially bowed when you came in. And you were bowing to that tradition. And that's something he carried with him. And um, there, were, there was a Japanese, uh, not Japanese, an, Ira- an Iranian gold medalist named Takti, who uh, was the hero of Iran for a period of time. And he mentored the Iron Sheik. And the Iron Sheik had been in the Pan-American Games, and he had been in the World Games, and um, he did seem to be Olympic-bound. And then Takti died mysteriously. The Iron Sheik was well aware that uh, Takti was not afraid to speak out against some of the Shah of Iran's policies, particularly um, the way Takti felt that the poor were treated. Uh, Takti felt more resources should be going to assist the poor. And, um, you know, the Iron Sheik's family was not political, but he was aware of the society in which he lived. And he knew that Takti, speaking like that, had rankled the highest ranks of Iranian society and truly believed that he was disposed of. And, um, you know, there were demonstrations. The college students literally demonstrated at Takti's funeral. And Khazrao Vaziri, the Iron Sheik, concluded, boy, if they killed Takti, I can't imagine what would happen to me. And he already had a standing offer to train with the Minnesota Wrestling Club in Minneapolis. Um, it, it, and the, the coach there was an Olympic coach. And he had made the offer. Alan Rice was the name of the coach. If, you know, anytime you want to move to the United States, I'll have you train with the Minnesota Wrestling Club. And so the Iron Sheik took him up on his offer. Uh, there's a story that he only knew two words, Alan and Rice, when he came to the U.S., he probably knew a few more, and um, he didn't go directly to Minneapolis. He actually stopped in Queens and stayed with his cousin Mustafa for one night. Uh, I don't think anyone at WWE uh, based 
the Colonel Mustafa character later on on that name. It's a fairly common name in the Islamic world. And then he came to Minneapolis and, um, you know, and he ended up being the assistant coach for the United States Olympic team in 1972 and 1976. So we have to think about this. Here's a guy who played an Iranian villain and an anti-American. In fact, he was never uh, a supporter of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And he loved America. I mean, he was an assistant coach on the U.S. Olympic team. The problem was when he went into professional wrestling, because Vern Gagne was very tied in with the Minnesota, Minnesota Wrestling Club. Vern Gagne himself was an alternate in the 1948 Olympics. So he trained the Iron Sheik in this very exclusive class that included, among others, jumping Jim Brunzel and and Greg Gagne, Ric Flair, Ken Patera, an Olympic athlete, and um, Bob Bruggers, who never established much of a name for himself, but he was a former NFL player. So these were high caliber athletes. And it was not just the Sheik who told me this, Ric Flair told me this, that the Iron Sheik could do things none of them could do. And we've seen decades of Ric Flair performing. And when Ric Flair says there were things that he couldn't do, that tells you what kind of athlete Khosrow Vaziri was. And, um, you know, he, it took him a while to uh, assimilate to the world of professional wrestling. And unfortunately, there were things in that world that uh, were very, um, I, I wouldn't say jarring, they were very eye-opening to a kid who didn't really go out with women and didn't drink and didn't smoke pot. You know, he was a very conservative kid back in Iran and suddenly there was all this temptation there and he went, he gave into some of that temptation which resulted in some of the outrageous stuff we, and unfortunate stuff we saw later on. Now, he also had a great sense of humor, which I witnessed and the boys witnessed, and a great personality. And he could not have pulled that off without that humor and that personality. When you see the Iron Sheik character, he knew he was being funny, and he was very good at being funny. And he liked being funny, and he also liked to laugh. But underneath that, he was also a very serious athlete. All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the microphone over to you for the next round of questions. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, Cosro getting to the United States, Minnesota, Alan Rice, Vern Gagne, the connection. Let's talk a little bit about Cos's training uh, with Vern and also dealing with Billy Robinson because, again, Billy Robinson was, was one of those guys that was had some notoriety let's just say, uh, amongst the people that were training uh, at Burns no Camp. Yeah, 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 very much. So let's yeah. just talk about some of uh, Co you know, Cosro's dealings with, with, with Billy Robinson because, again, this guy could be a downright bully at times. Yes, he could. And, you know, he was from the school that you had to humble people. But uh, Cosro Vaziri was from the school of thought if somebody was applying themselves, yeah, maybe you didn't, uh, you know, swath them in compliments because you had to 
earn your way and pay your dues. But uh, they would get down on the ground and they would wrestle. And, you know, Khosrow Vaziri was an Olympic caliber wrestler. He never made it to the Olympics because he left Iran. I'm fairly certain that he would have qualified for the Olympics if he hadn't become injured or something of that nature. And, um, you know, Billy Robinson would try to show up his students to show that he knew more than everybody else. And he knew an awful lot. But he also knew um, hooks, uh, shooting, uh, different types of shooting techniques that were not legal in the amateur ranks. And he wasn't afraid to uh, implement those. And at one point they were training, and Ric Flair witnessed this. And, you know, they, he said, let's go to the down position. And, you know, Billy Robinson couldn't really do much with Khosrow Vaziri from the down position. Now let's go to the up position. And, you know, Khosrow Vaziri was handling him. And Billy Robinson, who was known to be something of a bully and wanted to maintain his dominance, suddenly drove his knee into Khosrow Vaziri's uh, thigh. And, you know, Khos felt this is not what a coach does. A coach makes you better. A coach doesn't cheap shot you. And he had told Ric Flair, you know, I'm going to hurt him. I am going to get back at him, and he's going to pay for this. And at this point, I am not even sure that Kaz knew the big secret yet, because back then, kayfabe was enforced sometimes until after you had made your in-ring debut. I mean, superstar Billy Graham told me when he was working for Stu Hart, he'd be in a tag team match, and he was still like, kicking guys hard in the chest when the bell rang, to the point where Stu Hart said, somebody's better smarten this guy up. So Vern Gagne brought the Iron Sheik into a gym. Uh, it was just the two of them. And he hit the Iron Sheik with a drop kick in the chest. And rather than fall, well, he might have fallen, but rather than just quiver on the canvas, he stood up. And he went back at Vern again to wrestle more. And that's when Vern told him what the business was all about and invited him in and said, be one of us. And uh, he certainly became one of them. Oh, yeah. And he got to the point where he ended up helping out as a trainer uh, for Vern as well. I mean, this, this is a guy that could adapt. Yes, he did. Yes, yeah. he certainly did. And over the years, um, there were a lot of people who he helped train. Um, he helped train people when he was working in Houston. Uh, Stu Hart asked him at one point to help tra uh, train his kids. That didn't mean he was the only one who trained the Hart kids. Stu Hart wanted his kids to be great wrestlers, and he had wrestlers from all over the world, England, Germany, Japan, Mexico, train his kids. But when he met Khosrow Vaziri, he said, this is the kind of man with the kind of wrestling knowledge I, w I want around my kids and make them into great wrestlers. And I'm not going to say that Brett became the excellence of execution because of the Iron Sheik, but he definitely added to the, to the uh, masterpiece.
Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, this, you know, it wasn't only just wrestling uh, up in the Midwest uh, that uh, really benefited uh, Iron Sheik. It was also it benefited him uh, in, in matters of the heart as well. I mean, he, this is kind of where he fell in love and, uh, you know, found the love of his life. That's very true. And, you know, we tell all the drug stories. Um, well, you know, the, the redemption story has a lot to do with his wife. And, you know, this is in the A&E documentary. This is not a secret. Uh, you know, his wife put up with an awful lot. He was away a lot. Um, his daughters told me, you know, when he was home, he tried his best to be a really good involved father. But he was the Iron Sheik, and he couldn't really go out with his kids' places, you know? He taught his kids, he had three girls, he did teach them how to wrestle. And fortunately, later on, he had one grandson, like the only boy born into that family, who happens to be studying jujitsu, and he gave him some really expert coaching with that. But, um, you know, they said he did his best to really be a good, involved father. And, but, you know, he had his demons, and there were the demands of the road, and he had injuries. And when his demons overtook him, uh, his wife finally made the decision to leave. And when I first started on the book with him, he was living in a small apartment about a mile or two from his wife, and he was grieving. He really missed her. And he knew what was taken away from him, and I don't think he could really handle the notion of going through life without her in it day to day. And so there were rules that were set, and his wife set these rules, and his oldest daughter set these rules, and the Iron Sheik, who didn't like listening to people or told what to do, adhered to those rules. And, you know, that's why his grandchildren have wonderful memories of the last dozen or so years of their lives, of him being a day-to-day -day involved grandparent, who, who they saw... So some of those grandchildren saw him every single day. Oh, man, that is just so cool that he was able to get that kind of quality time with, with the kids and the grandchildren. And I wonder if that grandson is uh, going to be uh, as good with the Persian clubs as uh, Kazro was because, man, when I was going through some... That's um, a good question. He's still very young. Well, I know. I, I'm just kidding. He, time will tell. But, I mean, I, I was going through watching some Georgia Championship Wrestling around 82, 83 when, when uh, Iron Sheik was in the territory. <laughs> And he had the challenge, but the stuff that they were able, uh, when he went to a, a bodybuilding competition, uh, was very cool because not only was he challenging the bodybuilders, one of those that was Jim Helwig. And watching that yes, again, and like true. seeing these guys, these, these chiseled Adonises, you know, lifting and having all kinds of whatever, uh, you know, watching them trying to maneuver those clubs was I mean, it was, again, we could bring back the word humble. It was humbling for a lot of these guys because this wasn't an easy thing. Right. I mean, and again, that, that's, that, no, it's not an easy thing because they were, what were they, like 50 pounds a piece or something? Yeah, and, and the way he kept balancing them with down. them, too. Right, and that's the thing. Nobody, you know, in, in Iran, when they were training to wrestle, everybody learned how to do that balance. You know, uh, here nobody knew how to do that. The one person 
who I well, Bob Backlund was able to do it when mm-hmm. they did that storyline where Bob Backlund actually, you know, picked up the Iranian exercise clubs. Those were the legitimate Iranian exercise clubs. Those were not gimmick Iranian exercise clubs or Persian exercise clubs. And the other fellow who was able to do it very well was Mark Henry, but of course he's one of the strongest men on earth or was at the time. Yeah, I mean, just it, I was always so impressed with that. I mean, just the, the way he would, and it was almost like trance like the way he would get into it. I mean, he could have gone on forever. It seemed like as a kid, you're watching this and like, wow, this is amazing because this was, again, a part of the uniqueness of, of what made him him. I mean, this was some of the, the really, really cool things. And when he was able to come back to the WWF and, and be the guy, the, the transitional champions people say or whatever, to be that guy to take the title from Bob Backlund, I mean, uh, this was big. I mean, going into the main event, I mean, what he may have main evented, uh, what, in the early 80s with, when he was working with the Hussein Arab gimmick. But, I mean... Having it, right. being able to land and and to be able to get lifted into such a big position, I mean, this was big because it wasn't all that long, it wasn't that that long ago at the time. He was still, you know, traveling up through the territories. This was another one of those pieces of the puzzle that Vince McMahon had put together in in, in his creation and his ascent to dominate and to take over what it was pro re- modern pro wrestling at the time. And she had a lot to do with that too. Because well, well, when you think about that. He couldn't just, it would not have made sense to have Hulk Hogan come in as a baby face and, and beat Barb Backlund. And I don't think Bob Backlund was very comfortable laying down for Hulk Hogan, even if he was asked to do that, because, uh, you know, Bob Backlund was an, an amateur wrestler. Um, you know, and Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik, they had a lot of history together. And, um, you know, he was, Bob Backlund, I think, was from North Dakota, but he was trained by Eddie Sharkey in Minnesota. So they had that tie, too. And so it was a combination of things. It was the fact that he was this great, pure athlete who, you know, it would not seem far-fetched if Bob Backlund lost him. As it turned out, Bob Backlund could save face because Arnold Skolin threw in the towel. But the Iron Sheik was also a great character, like all the characters that Vince was creating at the time, because he was steering wrestling in that direction. Hulk Hogan was not Jack Briscoe or Dory Funk Jr. He was, it was Hulkamania. It was a new era. And the Iron Sheik was the Iron Sheik. They could put these guys in a Saturday morning cartoon show and... People could buy it. Adults could buy into it. And so he checked both boxes. Mm-hmm. And the way he was able to kind of move on uh, after, you know, dropping the title to Hogan and finding his way into the tag ranks with Nikolai and then working also with Freddie Blassie. I mean, this was, again, that was another dream combination just from you never knew kind of what was going on, what they're going to say on the mic because they were, you know, you had Freddie who was just a rapid fire. But you also had the Sheik and Nikolai who in their own unique ways were kind of fun to watch because uh, you know, they they too had their own sort of character building and that was one of those things. I mean, all of a sudden you're watching it and then you're seeing them in a music video for the you know, the Goonies are good enough with Cindy Lauper. So right, exactly it, it was just such a fun time because again when wrestling took off they had that they had the momentum. They had MTV, I mean Sheiky Baby was 
just as much part of that rock and uh, wrestling connection. I mean, when you think about it, because he was featured in videos, he was on these events. I mean, this was a really just a major into the stratosphere move because you go from a regional hand to a superstar like that. Boy, I mean, again, it had to have whipped him around. I mean, this um, guy coming from Iran. Uh, you know, ten years prior or twelve years prior to being able to work in the biggest uh, arenas in the country against and making big money. I mean, this work was in the big. biggest arenas in the country and be and be in music videos yeah. with like the top music stars in the country. <laughs> I mean, it's unthinkable. Oh, I know, you know it, and I think I think he truly enjoyed that, and I'm sure that the entertainers truly enjoyed him. Because at his core, he was a nice guy and he was a curious guy. And I'm sure he asked them a lot of questions about what they did and why it was popular and made them feel very special. I I could have only imagined a potential meeting between him and Andy Warhol, just the dynamic. Yes, I I, I never witnessed that myself. But I do remember seeing Andy Warhol backstage uh-huh. And he was respectful. He was nice to the talent. I mean, he was used to being around characters. He was just not what we imagined a traditional wrestling fan to be. But we were wrong. Because, as we know now, wrestling fans come from all sorts of backgrounds and have all sorts of sensibilities. And whatever you say about Vince McMahon... Vince is the one with the rock and wrestling connection who paved the way for LGBTQ people to say they were wrestling fans. And, you know, kids who are into drama to say they were wrestling fans. Theater kids. It wasn't just the jocks. And the jocks are welcome, too. It made wrestling in some ways more inclusive to the greater society. And then when you read about, you know, um, Andy Warhol's background, he comes from, uh, I, I forget, his parents are from a very small part of the former Czechoslovakia. So he was from immigrant stock. So like myself, he was probably used to watching wrestling with his immigrant family, like everybody else like him, except he became Andy Warhol and we didn't. Exactly. We're bringing Mike McCurdy back into the conversation with Keith Elliott Greenberg, our guest this week, as we remember the life of the Iron Sheik, Khosrow of Azeri. One of the great things for me about the Iron Sheik is not what he accomplished in this, you know, the things he's done, but the things that people thought he did, the stories that have become part of the fabric of the Iron Sheik, which aren't necessarily fact. Um, like I recently discovered, I did not know. I was mistaken for time. He was not an Olympic champion. He was supposed to be in there. But a lot of people think he was an Olympic medalist uh, before Kurt Angle and all that. But it was... Uh, because because that's what games, was said in the hype. And there's there's, there's other stories, though. But he was an Olympic yeah. coach. When, yes. Yeah. So when you're working on the book and you were talking with no. Sheik, you know, yeah. and over your experiences... What are some of the other stories that have come up that have become legend about the Sheik that aren't 100% factual or maybe kind of a little ver- awkward version of the actual truth? 
I, nothing scandalous, of course. Just you know, basic uh, that, stories of his a, career. That, that's that's a tough one to ask. I mean, there's so many things like that. I don't know. I I, I I'm nothing's popping into my head because there is so much hype in professional wrestling. So um, a little bit. I I don't know because like the story about him being a bodyguard for the Shah of Iran was true. So, you know, everybody probably rolled their eyes at that. Look, just like the story about Adnan Al-Kaysi being a childhood friend or at least associate of Saddam Hussein was true. So sometimes, in I've, I said this in um, my last book, which was about pro wrestling during the time of COVID. You know, sometimes it's hard to know what's real and what's wrestling or if it's all... It, or it all, it's all bl- blending together. Very, very true. It just seems like sometimes the Iron Sheik is one of those that really kind of where kind of stands out. I mean, I've all watched him since I was a kid. I remember, obviously, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, him defeat, yeah, excuse me, new tongue, being defeated by Hulk Hogan for the title. I mean, we all saw that on the opening of WWF television for you know years. Um, but Sheik has become an icon not just in professional wrestling, but also just kind of in the world of pop culture, people who don't know wrestling or don't really follow wrestling, they knew who the Iron Sheik was. People are coming up to me going, oh, I heard the Iron Sheik died. Oh, I love that guy. I saw him on this or that. What about the Sheik's character or his right, personality and, and look, and this made is him where, such a pop culture? Right. Right. And look, there, there was a lot of things about the Howard Stern era that I did not like because the Sheik was in a sad place. But the essence of his personality, his ability as a performer shined, even though I didn't always like how it manifested itself. And, you know, it wasn't all bad. The visibility was affirming to him in some ways. He wasn't forgotten. He was still vital. And, you know, look... He, he enjoyed the whole, you know, the, the attention he got from Twitter. He liked that there were fans who hadn't even watched him in wrestling who came up to him now and recognized him. So, you know, it was a mixed bag. And in recent years, when he was drug-free and, you know, he was being outrageous by that point, he'd said, look, I don't really hate Hulk Hogan. You know, I, I don't really have any issues with these, but what's done is done. So I think people understood that it was tongue-in-cheek. One part of my uh, experience with him at CAC that it stands out more to me than just the, you know, what I saw in the hotel room and, you know, some of the stories he was telling was... Uh, Billy Graham asked me to bring Sheik to his table at the uh, at the blowout that night. So I was wheeling Sheik through the room with the guys that were there representing him from, uh, I want to say a group in Boston. But you'd see, you know, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Terry Funk, DiBiase, Slaughter. They all came up to say hi to him. And Sheik would put his foot down and I couldn't move that wheelchair to save my life once that man, even at that age, he put his foot down that wheelchair was not moving. But he was so excited and so happy to see everybody. And everybody he saw, he would look at me and say, Oh, Big Mike, this Sergeant Slaughter, he's Sheik's friend. Sheik loves Slaughter. And they would hug and tell stories. And that, to me, stood out the most. Because even though he's supposed to be the vile Haktui USA Sheik, 
he loved seeing these guys because these are the men that he worked with. These were his friends, and to see that, oh, he loved seeing the them. And, and the guys you mentioned, in particular, you know, like a guy like Terry Funk, he knew what a great athlete Terry Funk was, and what a great character Terry Funk was. So Terry Funk appealed to him on two levels, and you know, Terry Funk was a champion, like he was a champion, and. You know, whether it's predetermined or not, generally, you don't become a champion unless you're worthy of being a champion. There have been some exceptions, as we all know. But, um, you know, so this was his company. These were his peers. And he was proud to be in that peer group. And he belonged there. Oh, definitely. I think the best one for me, and Glenn, you'll you'll get, you'll enjoy this with AWA Connection, is uh, as I'm just wheeling him to his table... Paul Vachon comes up, and he's got uh, his brother Maurice in his wheelchair, and they wheel him up. Sheik saw him, stood up in his wheelchair, turns around, grabs me, and goes, hey, Mad Dog, we fight, my friend Conrad. Sheik looked like he had tears in his eyes. Mad Dog had this grin from ear to ear, and those men sat together and just talked for like five minutes, just reminiscing. And that Can right there was probably the highlight. those two? And think about that. Two of the greatest characters in wrestling and two of the greatest athletes in wrestling. Because Mad Dog Vashon was an Olympian. So, you know, again, they're connecting on multiple levels. I think it just shows that, you know, even though what you see on TV, that wasn't entirely the Sheik. The stuff you heard on Howard Stern wasn't entirely him. Because like you said, he had his demons and there were some things like that. It was partially, but not entirely, yes. Some of it, yes, yeah. It wasn't entirely him. And one thing I learned in the A&E documentary, which uh, I did not know about, was the passing of his daughter. Now, that obviously, I would oh, think, kind of had a, a change in his life and kind of helped him to kind of clean up. Yes, after. and I, I think a lot of, I, yes, I think a lot of the negative stuff you saw with him was in the aftermath of that. And he was having a very time co hard time coping with that. Obviously, his self-destructive tendencies escalated. And um, that's why when people bring up some of that stuff, it's so disturbing to me because this was a man who was traumatized and his entire family was traumatized. And he felt a lot of guilt as any parent would. Um, so, you know, yes, that is something no human being should have to endure. And... Uh, you know, he and his wife and his other daughters loved each other, and somehow they managed to get through it and, you know, make a good life for all of them for the last, for more than a decade. Well, Keith, as we wrap up this uh, this interview, and I want to thank you for joining us to talk about the Sheik, I'd like to give you the microphone again to not just about the Sheik, but Billy Graham, Lanny Poffo. What are something you want the listeners to remember about these men? Uh, simply what we've been discussing. These are men. These are not characters. These are people who sacrificed. These are people who sacrificed their bodies. These are people who sacrificed their personal lives. And they do it for me. And they do it for you. And they do it for everybody listening. That's what they do for us. And let's never forget that these are human beings who are taking a lot away from themselves to give to us and show them the respect they deserve. 
Well, once again, Keith, thank you for joining us. And as I said in the intro, you know, people are going to see you, have seen you a lot on the, you know, the History Channel shows. Anything coming up uh, in the near future? Uh, no, I'm like working on another book. I have, um, sure, I had a book come out in 2020 called uh, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. Amazing That book. was followed up in 2022 by um, Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. And I am currently on, in the interview stage of my next book that is um, tentatively titled Bigger, Bet, uh, bigger, bet, better, badder. Um, WrestleMania three and the year everything changed, and it's about how WrestleMania three transformed the industry. And when I say the industry, I'm not just talking about WWE. I'm also interviewing people who were in other promotions at the time and in other aspects of the industry. I've interviewed Dave Meltzer. I've interviewed Bill Apter. I've interviewed George Napolitano. So it's um, a comprehensive view of the events that led to WrestleMania three and how the business now is uh, has been metamorphosized because of that one event. Well, I'll definitely be looking forward to adding that to my library. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us this week, and I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn. Oh, yeah, I, I echo what Mike said. It was a thank pleasure you. having you on once again, Keith. And, and I think I have another program where I have a – it's called the Glenn Brockett Book Club where I read rock and roll books, and I noticed you've got a few in your, uh, in, in your uh, discography here. I do, here. yes. So we might have to get yeah, together if, one of these times. If you're going to make a living as a – That'd be great. Look, if you're going to make a living as a professional writer, you better be versatile. And uh, I certainly have learned to do that. Absolutely. And for, for Keith, for Mike, this is Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories.